Last year, many of you will remember that um, Brookstone took on a multi-year ministry project in the country of Rwanda. We, uh, we essentially adopted a village in Rwanda, uh, the village of Bagagwe. We adopted the village church, and in a very real way, we adopted or sponsored, at least, 250 children. Our church family, collectively, sponsored 250 children through Compassion International uh, there in Bagagwe. And we expect, we expected last year, we continue to expect this year that we will have many years of ministry impact in this little Rwandan village. In fact, last May, we had planned our very first mission trip uh, to Bagagwe. We had to cancel the trip uh, because of COVID, but, uh, but we look forward to uh, getting that rescheduled and getting a team of you over there uh, in, the coming, in the coming months. Now, if you, know, if you know much about Rwanda's history, you'll recognize the miracle that it is that our church was planning to send a group of people from Western North Carolina into the heart of the nation of Rwanda. Uh, it hasn't been that long ago. I mean, in terms of history, it hasn't been very long ago at all. Only about 25, 26 years ago that Rwanda endured in a period of only 100 days from April of 1994 through July of 1994, they endured a 100-day killing spree. It was in the midst of a civil war. There was ethnic cleansing that was taking place, and a genocide occurred in Rwanda. Many of you are old enough to remember when this occurred. In a period of under 100 days, there were nearly, nearly 1 million Rwandans that were slaughtered. And, and these weren't killings that happened in a, trend, a traditional or a typical kind of warfare. This was quite literally neighbor killing neighbor. One tribal group rising up against another tribal group. They were killing each other at the rate of 10,000 people per day who were being killed over the period of 100 days. Most of them hacked to death with machetes. It's hard for us to imagine it. It really is. Rwanda is only a country, or was in 1994, a country of about 7 million people. Now think about it. The entire nation existed of 7 million people and within three months, three and a half months, a million of those people were murdered by their neighbors. Someone had correctly written about this genocide. They said the genocide did not only kill many people, it killed Rwanda. Killed the nation. In the aftermath of the genocide, the leaders of the nation, the newly installed government, turned to Christ to find hope and help. Christian ministries from all over the world were invited in to, uh, to offer help, and quite literally, the gospel flooded across 
Rwanda. One of those organizations was World Vision. And World Vision was tasked with implementing, formulating and implementing a recovery plan. It's called the Rwanda Reconciliation Project. And it spells out four steps to the reconciling of the people of Rwanda and the rebuilding of the nation. The first step was that the Hutu people, the Hutu tribal members, who were the ones who had done the killing, they were charged with facing, face-to-face, the Tutsi people, the Tutsi tribe, with facing the survivors of the families who had been killed. You can imagine, many of those Tutsi villagers had had their entire family slaughtered. Husbands and and fathers and uncles and, and mothers and daughters who had been raped and murdered. And the survivors were then to come face to face with the killers of their family. The Hutus were instructed that they were not to place blame on any government influence or anyone else. They were to take full responsibility for what they had done. And they were instructed that they were to ask the Tutsis to forgive them. Thirdly, the Tutsis were then instructed that they were to extend forgiveness to the Hutus, to the killers of their family. They were not allowed to take any form of retribution at all. They were simply told, you will be asked for forgiveness And you're to extend it. And then the uh, Hutu and the Tutsi tribes were to come out of that reconciliation project working together to rebuild the nation of Rwanda. And even until today, 26 years later, still every month there is a day set aside in Rwanda where the nation comes together, Hutus and Tutsis, and all of the people of Rwanda, and they work together, even until today, in the rebuilding of the nation of Rwanda. Now, this project, this, this reconciliation project, which spelled out, we're going to ask for forgiveness, we're going we're to extend forgiveness, and then we're going to work together, came with this caveat from World Vision. It was explained that the plan to reconcile Rwanda was doomed to failure unless the people of Rwanda turned to Jesus Christ. And that if they would turn to Christ, that he would give them the power to forgive one another and to be able to rebuild their families and their villages and their nation. And so... In short, what happened out of this tragedy is that the gospel was proclaimed all across the land of Rwanda and hundreds of thousands of Rwandans came to faith in Jesus. And today, 26 years after people were being slaughtered at a rate of 10,000 per day, today Rwanda has been reborn, literally and spiritually. 93% of Rwandans claim personal saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it is a shining star of African nations on the continent of Africa. 
Now, I tell you that story about Rwanda because it really is a living illustration of the power of the gospel to heal hearts and to remake lives and even to rebuild a nation. And it's helpful for us. It's instructive for us in these days of racial tension in the United States. All of us remember May the 25th. In fact, I don't think we'll ever forget it. We remember the video scenes from cell phones of the killing of George Floyd while in police custody in Minneapolis. We all know what happened. We've seen the video over and over again. And following the death of George Floyd, as all of you know, protests uh, erupted. And rightly so, protests erupted in Minneapolis to begin with. And then from there, they began spreading all over the nation and even around the world. Did you know that in all 50 states in the days since George Floyd was killed, there have been uh, protests um, in uh, upwards of 2,000 cities there have been and continue to be protests. Even in our own city here in Asheville, we've seen protests that have continued on and on. And in dozens of countries around the world, I mean, when you begin to read the list of countries where George Floyd-inspired uh, pro uh, protests have happened, it's amazing. England and Spain and Belgium and Brazil and Ireland and Scotland and Hong Kong and the Netherlands and on and on and on it goes. Every state and around the world. And all of us know that the protests over time, and it didn't take very long in fact, the protests um, erupted into riots. And, and what began as a protest became mobs in the streets. Businesses looted and destroyed and burned to the ground. Federal buildings and courthouses set ablaze and churches set on fire. Police officers attacked and killed. Autonomous zones set up. We're mostly familiar with where in Seattle, I guess, but in a number of cities, uh, autonomous zones trying to be set up, uh, moving the police out, moving the government out, and literally their own little countries being set up within the borders of U.S. cities. A movement to defund the police is, is moving across the land. And even some cities are moving to do just that, to defund their own police departments. It's been an incredible thing to watch this unfold. The killing of George Floyd was obviously a strike point. It was obviously the match uh, that lit the tinderbox of racial tension that had been building and winding more and more tightly over a number of years. And, and what has resulted is that as a nation, we are perhaps more divided than we've ever been in the last 200 plus years. As I mentioned last week, certainly since the days of the Civil War, the division has become like a Grand Canyon. It seems so vast, the chasm so wide, 
how could we ever bridge it? And so our question today is, well, what does God have to say about it? What does God say about racism? What does God say about reconciliation? And really, as important as anything for us today, what does God say about the role of the church in these things? And so, let's, let's answer that question. Ephesians gives us some insight in chapter number 2. I want you to follow along as I read beginning in verse number 11. Ephesians 2 verse 11. Here's, here's what the Bible says. Wherefore, remember that you, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who at one time were far apart, far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity or the hostility thereby. And came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them which were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And you were built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, or that that holds all things together, in whom all the building fitly framed together is growing unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, you may not read this passage and immediately on the surface understand that it would speak to racial division in our day. But I think you'll see pretty clearly pretty quickly as we learn together today that it is in fact incredibly relevant to us. Did you notice all of the words of separation? There are a lot of them in this passage. The words which highlight, which point out or point to the fact of the curse that separates us or the curse that divides us. Would you jot that down somewhere? This passage tells us about the curse that divides us. The passage begins in verse 11 where we began reading by establishing two different groups of people, two different uh, nationalities or far beyond that, two different races of people. It speaks of the circumcision and of the uncircumcision. Now, 
It's referring, as most of you know, to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Verse 11 speaks of the circumcision and the uncircumcision. Verse 11 identifies the Gentiles in the flesh as being the uncircumcision. And verse 12 identifies Israel or the Jewish people as being the circumcision. So immediately upon reading this text, you have a division, a separation of two different groups of people. And then he goes on to describe what that separation meant for them. Look at verse number 12. He says, because of the separation, you are strangers and aliens. That is, that you are estranged from one another. You are alien to one another. You don't come from the same place. You don't live in the same way. You don't, you're not going to the same place. You don't share the same values. You're two totally different groups of people in the passage, Jews and Gentiles. You are strangers and aliens. And this is not a near separation. It is a wide chasm of separation. He says in verse number 13, you are far away, not only far away from God were the Gentiles, but far away from the Jews, far away or separated from one another. Now verse number 14 draws a really helpful word picture for us. Verse 14 says, Christ is our peace who hath broken down, uh, who hath made both one and broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Now the word means the, the wall that divides us. The wall that has been erected, which keeps us separate from one another, it is, the word means, a wall of hostility. It's a dividing wall of hostility. You're on the one side, they're on the other side, and between you is a wall that keeps you separate. Now, that wall was made of some things. It was, if you can imagine the bricks in that wall of separation, they were, they were made of, well, first of all, religion. They're religious values. You'll see this in verse number 15 where he talks about how that Christ has in his flesh abolished the enmity and he, he abolished the law, or didn't abolish, but fulfilled the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances so that he can make of the two groups one, uh, one new and, and unified group. The Jewish people lived according to the values of the Mosaic law. The Gentile people did not live according to the values of the Mosaic law, and simply their religious beliefs caused this division and this wall of separation to go up between them. They were divided because of or divided over their religion, they were divided over their traditions, they were divided over their culture. And the division resulted in attitudes toward one another, where they pointed their fingers at one another. You see this in verse number um, 16, when he talks about the enmity. He, he talks about uh, slaying the enmity. The word enmity means the hostility or the hatred to be one's, to have enmity with another is to be one's enemy. Those two words sound a lot alike. It'll help you remember it. Where there is enmity, there is my enemy. He says that between these two groups, because they were so divided over religion and traditions and culture, they were separate from one another. They were pointing at one another and they hated one another. 
And then in verse number 19, again, he affirms that because of the division, because of the culture differences, because of the religious differences, because of the traditional, uh, the differences in tradition, because they uh, hated each other, they were just strangers and foreigners and alien from one another. The point is that, that all of this division existed, and the passage highlights the fact that that when you look at these two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, there is, there's a wide chasm between them. Now, it's instructive for us because in our day of racial tension, we're not dealing with Jews and Gentiles, but we're dealing with black America and white America, largely. That's what we're dealing with. And this great chasm or this dividing wall that continues to seem to get taller and taller and the division's greater and greater. And this idea of racism that, is, that we're struggling with as a nation is present in this passage as well. Because implicit in Ephesians 2, and it's explicit in plenty of places otherwise in Scripture, but it is at least implicit in Ephesians chapter number 2 that there is a racist attitude among the Jewish people of Paul's day toward the Gentile people of Paul's day. You see this in the very beginning in verse number 11. Look at it when he says, Wherefore remember that you being in, the, uh, in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that uh, which is called the circumcision of the flesh made by hands. In other words, the Jews uh, loved to call the Gentiles the uncircumcision. Now, many of you who understand your Bible know that circumcision under the Abrahamic covenant was the mark of God on the Jewish people. They were his covenant people. They were his chosen people. And circumcision was that mark upon the covenant people. And what the Jewish people, the covenant people, loved to point out about the Gentiles was that they were the uncircumcision or they were the non-covenant people. And when they would say, uh, when they would call you that, they were saying, we are God's elite. We are God's chosen. We are superior because we are the circumcision and you are the uncircumcision. Now again, it's implicit in Ephesians 2, but it's, it's seen so many other places in Scripture. This, this racist view of the Jewish people in Paul's day is so clear in so many passages. In fact, one telling passage is in Mark chapter number 7, um, where Mark records for us the, an interaction that Jesus has with a, with a Canaanite woman, a Jewish woman, and she comes to him asking for his mercy, and, and Jesus verbalizes the point of view of the Jews of his day. And what he verbalizes is that the Jewish people of his day believed that the Gentiles were simply dogs. You've heard the phrase, Gentile dogs. This comes from Mark 7. Jesus says, well, you're asking me to give you bread, but I didn't come to give bread to you. I came to give it to the children, and, and, and the Gentiles are dogs in the view of the children. And interestingly, the Canaanite woman didn't bow up. She didn't say, how dare you call me a dog? She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the children's table. Now, the whole point I'm making to you is, Jesus in that interaction shows us that the Jews of his day and the Gentiles of his day understood that in the social structures of the day, 
the Jews were the children and the Gentiles were the dogs. And that's the way everybody viewed it. It's, it's, it's the definition of racism. In fact, write this down if you will. I know you know what it is, but let's make sure we're, we're using the same definition for racism. Here it is. Racism is the belief that one is superior to another on the basis of his race or ethnicity. Racism is the belief that one is superior. It's what Jesus was dealing with in Mark 7. It's what Paul is dealing with in Ephesians 2. It's what we're wrestling with in our land in these days. The view that some believe that they are superior to another. And again, as Ephesians 2 makes clear, racism builds walls. It, it builds great walls of hostility which separate us from one another. And the reason that it does so is simple. It is because racism is sin. And sin builds walls of separation. It doesn't really matter what the sin is. Any kind of sin separates us from other people. And certainly racism is one of those. I mean, consider Adam and Eve. When sin entered into the garden, immediately they were divided, not just from God, but from one another. Consider Cain and Abel. Sin entered into Cain's heart, separated relationally, spiritually from his brother, ultimately murdered his own brother. Consider Paul and Barnabas, two great men of God in the New Testament, loved the Lord, serving him, and yet because of sin, they were divided. Their ministry went separate ways. I don't even have to look to Genesis or to Acts to see that sin separates. I can see it in my own life. In my own experience, when there is sin in my life or sin in the lives of people that I love, it causes this division, this separation. So racism is sin. And because racism is sin, then racism separates us and it builds walls of division. So let's, let's talk. Let's talk honestly about racism in America. Now all of us know that, that racism in America can be traced back ultimately, to what has been called America's original sin. And we all know what America's original sin in that context was. It was the sin of slavery. It is a sad mark on the history of our great nation uh, that African people were enslaved in this land for nearly 200 years beginning long before the American Revolution, beginning long before we were a sovereign nation, in the colonies, African people were brought to America as slaves. And all of us would wish that this was not true. Any person would look at our history and say, what a black mark on the history of our land. And we ought to acknowledge it as just that, as the original sin of America. But I want to say to you clearly that while slavery might have been America's original sin, slavery did not originate in America. It's an interesting uh, survey that I read just uh, last week which said that the majority, and I'm talking about an overwhelming majority, of millennials and younger believe that slavery is an exclusively American problem. 
and that it was an American invention, when in fact that's not true at all. Slavery came to America with our first settlers. And slavery has existed in the world throughout history. In Mesopotamia, there were slaves. There were slaves in uh, Egypt. Uh, the, uh, the Babylonians took slaves. Uh, the Jewish people had a system of slavery, although very different from much of the slavery that we see in the world. But still, it existed. Uh, the Muslim peoples, even until today in many cases, uh, take and keep slaves. While slavery is a black mark on the history of America, we should also acknowledge and celebrate that within 20 years of America becoming a sovereign nation, this nation took steps to outlaw slavery. Slavery didn't originate with America. America has led the way in eradicating slavery in the modern era. In fact, while it took a century for us to get there, we fought a war, a civil war, to make sure that slavery did not continue in our land. Still, even though that's true, racist beliefs and racist policies continue to persist, persisted throughout the 20th century in America, and in many ways they continue to persist today. In ways like segregation, through the civil rights movement, in ways like, while not literal or legal segregation in our day, in some parts of our country, um, illegally enforced or implicit segregation even still happens today. Matters of housing and voting rights and the criminal justice system and many, many ways. I recently spent... few days sitting and listening to some of my black friends and I just said to them I'm a learner talk to me tell me your experience as a black person in America I was told a lot but three things that stood out to me are these number one I was told by one of my friends that she had been trained her whole life as a black person, that she was not to be too loud or expressive, too animated in social gatherings because she was taught from a child, it makes the white people nervous. I was told by one of my friends that he had felt the need, the requirement to teach his own children from their youngest age to plan ahead of time how they were going to respond when someone called them the N-word. Not because it might happen and decide what you'll do when it happens, but know what you will do when it happens because it will happen. And I was told by one of my friends who was a well-known black leader in our city, if I called his name, many of you would know him, well-known. I'm, I'm talking about recognized in our city. You would, you would know who he is when you see him. And he said three times, three times over the last year, I have been pulled over by law enforcement 
for no reason or bogus reasons. Simply because of where I was driving. And the first question at the window was, where are you going? Now I have to tell you, I have no idea what it would be like to live under that. None of those things have ever happened to me in my entire life as a white man. None of those things have happened. But while I I cannot sympathize with them, I certainly can acknowledge that these things are real and they do happen. And that I need to never minimize those events and they should never be tolerated. Earlier this year, we studied through the book of Genesis together in our origin series, and we learned something really important. I want you to write this down. You, you wrote it then, I hope. Maybe you're new to our church. You didn't get it written down then, so this will be your first time. We learned from Genesis 11 that there are many nations, but there is only one race. This is biblical truth, okay? Uh, there's only one race. The fact of the global flood in Genesis chapter number 6 And the fact that there was the limited survival of only eight people after that flood tells us that that all of our roots can be uh, traced back to uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and their wives. And ultimately beyond that, of course, to Adam and to Eve uh, in the garden. But what that means is that when Shem and Ham and Japheth came off of the ark with their wives, that all of the genes necessary to produce the racial diversity that exists in our world today were contained in those three couples. Now, there are a lot of differences among us. We come from different cultures. We speak different languages. We have differences in our skin tone. But the fact is, we are all one race. It is the human race. In fact... The Bible affirms this in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, when the scripture says, and he has made from one blood, one blood, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. I said it back when we were studying through Genesis. I'll say it again today. Racism in any form is the child of ignorance. It is the product of poor teaching, and it is the fruit of a foolish mind. And it should not exist among the people of God. So the question is, if this is what racism is, and if, in fact, it exists, and if the racial tension has divided our nation, if sin is the curse that divides us, and racism is a sin, then the question becomes... How do we come together? And the answer to how we come together in this particular instance is the same answer as it relates to every other sin. While there is a curse that divides us, the good news is there is a cross that unifies us. Back to Ephesians chapter number 2, we noted all of the statements of division and separation that are found in Ephesians 2, but there's a testimony in Ephesians chapter number 2 as well. You'll see the testimony 
in verse number 13, where it begins by saying, but now in Christ Jesus. But now in Christ Jesus. Can you say those words with me out loud? Let's say it. But now in Christ Jesus. This is the way every testimony begins. But now Christ has changed everything. And where we saw words like aliens and strangers and separate and division and hostility and a wall separating us, the testimony of Ephesians 2 is that in Christ there is a unity. Look at verse number 14, Ephesians 2 and verse number 14. For he, Christ, is our peace. Well, loved ones, if Christ is peace for the Jew and the Gentile, then surely Christ is peace for the white man and the black man and the brown man and the red man and every man and every woman. He is our peace. For he is our peace. Verse 14 goes on to say, for he has made both one. This is the ministry of the cross. This is the ministry of reconciliation that he takes those that are at odds and he makes them one. And he does that by breaking down the dividing wall between us. I love this. that Christ is not tiptoeing around the difficult subjects of racism through the bloodshed at the cross. He kicks through the wall that has divided us. He destroys what divides us and he brings us together. He's our peace. He makes us one. He tears down the walls that divide us. Verse number 15 says, he has made peace between us. Verse number 16 says, by his cross, he has formed us into one body. He he didn't just say, now, I've moved the wall. Y'all get along. Some of you remember the the, the words of Rodney King back in the, was it the 90s, I guess, uh, early 2000s when Rodney King uh, said uh, of this racial division, can we all just get along? We used to do that with our kids sometimes when they would be fighting growing up. We'd say, all right, now y'all hug and make up. And they would, but they didn't want to. They would. The fact is they were forced into a compliant hug, but nothing had been remade. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't say, now straighten up and get along. He says, I'm going to take two totally different kinds of people, two totally different groups of people, and I am going to so radically work in your hearts that I'm going to bind you together, weave your lives together. You're not just going to get along because I told you to. You're going to be one. That's the power of the cross. He says, for he has made us one body. He's removed. He's taken away. He's destroyed the enmity or the hostility Uh, Verse 16 says, or the antagonism. Verse number 19, we are no longer strangers, estranged from one another, but we're brothers and sisters. We're fellow citizens. And verse number 22 says that he builds us together and we are this place, this habitation of God through the Spirit. Now here's the thing you have to know, that all of this peace out out of hostility, this unity out of division, this oneness out of separation. The fact that the hostility is gone and the wall of division is is destroyed. The fact that we're no longer estranged and we're even growing together in this beautiful unity that can be inhabited by God's Spirit. All of that is possible one way. Like they were told in Rwanda. It's doomed to failure. 
except for Christ. It's possible by one thing. Verse number 16 tells us what it is. Verse 16 says, by the cross. That he might reconcile both unto God in one body. How does he reconcile people to God in one body? He does it by the cross. By the cross. What does God say? Does God have the answer for racism? He does. Here it is. By the cross. Can God mend the brokenness among the races in America? He can. Here's how it'll happen. Not through politics, not through programs, but by the cross of Jesus Christ. And I would declare, just like World Vision declared to the Hutus and the Tutsis, this will never happen except for the cross of Jesus Christ. It is by the cross of Christ that he binds us together. Here's the principle. Racial reconciliation must happen first in Christ, then in the culture. It must first be true of the church, and then it can become true of the culture. By the way, this, this is not just the principle that relates to racial division. Can I, if y'all are with me, shout amen. Can, can I preach to you for just a second about something? The church is to be the model of reconciliation in every area of life. Not just areas of race. Christian couples ought to be the model of reconciliation for every marriage in America, in the world. We show what it looks like to be two broken people living in a relationship, having conflict, but in the grace of God and the unity of Christ, finding reconciliation. The church ought to model that. We ought to model it in extending forgiveness. When people sin against us and they wrong us, we ought to model that we believe in and we value and in Christ we experience reconciliation. That we value unity and oneness and we value love and loving one another. Here's the simple truth. If there can't be racial unity in the church, then the nation doesn't stand a chance. If, if there's not racial unity among God's people, then how do we ever expect racial tensions to be solved in America? It must happen, first of all, in Christ, and then it can happen to the culture. So here's my advice to you, and it's my advice to the nation. Let's meet at the cross. Let's find at the foot of the cross where Jesus died for every one of us. Red, yellow, black, and white, we're all precious in his sight. Jesus died for my white brother, for my indigenous brother, for my brown brother, for my black brother. Jesus died for all of us. So let's meet at the cross. And let's find unity at the cross. At the cross, some things are required though. I don't just mean we come to the cross and say, okay, we're all gonna get along now because there's Jesus on the cross. Now we get along. No, we understand the cross means some things for us. That the cross is where we confess our own faults. If you listen and say amen. At the cross, when I come to the cross, I come as a confessor. I come confessing my own faults. And at the cross, I don't come pointing out the faults of others. I leave that to Christ and their own heart and his Holy Spirit. I come to the cross confessing my faults and accepting those who meet me there and allowing Christ to work in them. So what does that mean for us as white 
Americans. And let me just spell it out to you plainly. How do we, how do, we do this? How do we find unity at the cross? Well, I think it means that for white America, while we celebrate that we are not the nation that we once were and that we have made great strides in racial justice and equality and reconciliation, it is incumbent upon white America to confess that we are not where we should be and we have some work to do. And before you turn that into a cultural discussion, let me press it upon your heart as a personal introspection. All of us as white Americans need to ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and to reveal to us if there are subtle prejudices that exist within us toward black America because of perhaps how we were raised, what previous generations handed to us in terms of the view of other races, you and I must say, God, I invite you to inspect my heart. I don't want there to be a a racist bone in my body. White America needs to say, God, we want to do better At the cross, black America must be willing to forgive the failures of this nation. Black America must come to the place of saying, what happened was wrong, what has happened is wrong, but I forgive. And never again play the victim. All the while, offering forgiveness as we all must do, and acknowledging the social failures among the black community as well. Most notably would be that the birth rate among black Americans to single mothers is nearly 70%. There has been an erosion of the American family, white and black, but certainly among the black family in America. And many of the ills that we see in our land are the result of the collapsing of the family. But here's my point. We must all come to the cross and say, I have been wrong, forgive me for where I've been wrong. And then thirdly, together, like the Rwandans, we have to begin to work to build one nation, as our our pledge says, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Now let me just close by telling you that um, that the book of Revelation describes for us the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of this hope of racial unity. Multinational, multiracial, multiethnic unity. This great ideal that America was founded upon but we failed in in a lot of ways, will find its perfect fulfillment in heaven. Let me read to you what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 9. It says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. 
Every tribe of the earth represented. Every, every color of people from all points of the earth included in that perfect worship in heaven. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. I'm sorry, that's chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 9. And I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and all people and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, all of them clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. I simply want you to know that the racial unity that, that America was founded upon achieving and that we hope to see achieved ultimately will be realized when we all get to heaven. It will be understood and experienced in heaven. But here's the job of the church. The job of the church is to bring a little bit of heaven to earth. And we bring heaven to earth by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if the church wants to influence the culture, we influence it by standing side by side and proclaiming that in Jesus Christ we are one. One nation under God.